Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis joining us from Somerville, Somerville Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. This month, Zahava is a bit busy, so we're really pleased to have my good friend and neighbor, Miriam steinberg Egith, joining us again from Philadelphia. Hi, Miriam. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, among Miriam's many claims to fame are her Jewish advice column in The Exponent, Miriam's Well, um, which we will link to in the show notes, and her forthcoming book, Warm and Welcoming, How the Jewish Community Can Become Truly Diverse and Inclusive in the 21st Century, which she co-edited with Warren Hoffman, and it's coming out this December. Me, we are so, so happy to have you here, Miriam. And my day is not complete until Miriam and I have exchanged at least 30 text messages and taken a walk together. So this is uh, an extra special delight for me. She's not exaggerating. <laughs> no, <laughs> at all. Um, this month, we're talking about Jewish day planners. We've got a review copy of the Olam Haba Dreaming the World to Come day planner that we're going to talk about as well as some other Jewish planners and planning techniques that we like and dislike. And for our second segment, we're talking about Jewish romance novels. I'm so excited. Zahava, we miss you a lot, but I'm really, um, <laughs> I'm feeling like this month is definitely not a month of things that Zahava would have loved. <laughs> so um, uh, this year brings us The Intimacy Experience by Rosie Dannon, as well as The Matzah Ball by Jean Meltzer. Um, and apparently there is a matzo ball series of romance novels by a different author, Laura Brown, that Miriam notified me of via text yesterday. So I'm going to have to get my hands on those as well. Also, how funny is it that there's multiple matzo ball mystery franchises now? So we're going to talk about what it looks like for a romance to be Jewish. All right, so let's jump in. We received a review copy of the Olam Haba Dreaming the World to Come Day Planner which was created by Rebecca Arev and Nomi Lamb. Um, so we're going to talk about a little bit about that specific planner and what, um, what we thought of it. And then we're going to talk um, more about just like planning, Jews, calendars. What, what, are we, what are we looking for? Let's start with, <laughs> I have to say, I really love being able to say that I received a review copy of the Olam Hava. <laughs> <laughs> just here for the notes um, tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like the naming convention here, chef's kiss, all the points. Yeah. What did you all think of this day planner? Um, I will start. I I really loved some of the graphics. Um, we're looking at like, I guess it would be sort of ink drawings. Um, really like fun and simple, a lot of um, quotes from Torah and Talmud sort of around different Jewish images like a pomegranate or leaves, each that um, tie into the month for each month. And then for each month, there's like two solid pages of diving into what the month means, a little bit of like a ritual suggestion, something you could do to mark the month. And some sort of text, whether it's a poem or a biblical quotation or story, I think each of the months is written by a different contributor. Um, and then we get so we get an overview of the, you know, just like the typical grid of a calendar. One thing that threw me at first, but I later came to appreciate is I didn't think of this, but obviously the months of the grid 
it's like, it starts with Tishrei. It's not starting with September. And so the, when you see the number one at the top, that's the first of Tishrei. It's not September 1st. And then you get a little bit more of a planner where you get like six different boxes for each day of the week. Shabbat gets a much longer box. So that's the structure of it. And I think I appreciated the structure, though. I'll talk a little bit more about why I don't use paper planners. Um, but I did find the design and the structure really pleasing. Um, I want to just read a little bit more about what is included. The Verdant Dreams of Olam Haba includes Jewish holidays, the weekly cycle of Shabbat, the monthly cycle of Rosh Chodesh, the Neti vote, in parentheses, Hebrew priestess archetypes, the tarot cards and plants associated with each month, and special teachings on the Shemitah year. I would say they maybe lost me at the Neti vote. <laughs> um, I mean, I felt like there's part of it that I was like, I would totally use this. Like it feels very workhorsey, but there were parts of it where I was like, this is just not for me. Like this is just stuff that I can't see myself using. And like, I am like extremely not a tarot person. So that part was like, just like, I don't think of myself as super woo, but then like sometimes I experience things and I'm like, I am actually a grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> That's how unwoo I am. So the like, yeah, I would say the neti vote and the tarot cards and plants associated with each month. I mean, the plants part was fine, but the tarot cards were like just kind of outside of my normal life. So the other thing that I find really interesting is like, I thought the structure of showing the pages, like having a longer day, uh, like more space to write on Shabbat was really weird. <laughs> I was like, but wait, I need less. Like I'm my whole thing about Shabbat is like, I'm not doing anything. I, if you want to give me a day of where I could like put more stuff, make it Sunday <laughs> because mm -hmm. that's the day when I have to get everything done in my whole life. Um, and having it be Shabbat, I was just like, I'm also somebody who doesn't write on Shabbat. So I was like, I wouldn't be using it on Shabbat. And I don't really need, I guess I could use that space to like plan menus for like Shabbat meals, which is something that I like typically do in a notebook. But it just like, there was something where I was like, this is weird that there's more room on Shabbat than anywhere else when like Shabbat is the time when I am like by design least productive. I was wondering actually if, you know, I, if this is designed for people who do write on Shabbat and if Shabbat was bigger because it's both a planner and it seems a little bit of a journal. I mean, there are all yeah. of these like writing and ritual and like diving deep prompts. And so it made me wonder whether Shabbat was bigger because the intention was this is what this is the time when you might want to dive deep and write some of your thoughts down and we'll give you more space on this day. I'm so glad that both of you called out that longer space on Saturdays because that was one of the most notable structural pieces of the planner for me. And I took a few notes when I was looking through the planner and what I wrote was Shabbat having so much space is a really nice metaphor, but bad for a planner. <laughs> um, so I hadn't even really been thinking about how people might use that space. I was just thinking like, if I'm looking through my planner and I see this sort of vast expanse of blank page on Shabbat, how does that sort of make me feel about that 
day. Um, so I thought of it totally metaphorically, but menu planning, in fact, is the right answer tomorrow, I think. Um, <laughs> and the, the other thing I wanted to kind of highlight that really stood out for me is that it is the, the sort of essays for each month. Many of them were really beautiful. Um, yeah. But so wordy, right? Like I go to a planner for very practical purposes and I'm not going to view my planner as a journal, right? Those are two yeah. separate entities for me. And so the kind of mixing of them made it really confusing for me about how sort of I would practically integrate this into my life. Maybe it's not meant to be super practical in that sense, but I couldn't see the translation from planner to the actual things that were in it. Um, Tamara, in place of where you said woo, I would say crunchy. Um, I often think I am, in fact, pretty crunchy. And then I look at something like this and I'm like, actually, no, uh, this is this is not for me, which I guess is the same language you used. But at the same time, I felt really, really glad that this existed for people for whom this would be meaningful. Mm -hmm. Right. So I feel very comfortable and confident saying this isn't the kind of thing that I would use. But for someone who would, it felt like very tailor made to a certain niche of Jew. And I will say probably Jewish woman um, that felt like this was a thing that existed for them with a certain kind of aesthetic and spirituality in mind. And I really appreciated that. The one other structural thing I'll say that actually drove me really crazy was that there were wavy lines in between each day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and when I am writing in a planner or any kind of notes to have a line that is not straight would drive me crazy and actually make me much less likely to write in it. And I realize again, maybe there are people who that would feel very free form and freeing and you could doodle or something, but that's not how I'm going to use a planner. What did you guys think of the Omer counting situation in this planner? There is a like, I don't really understand it. I didn't spend a lot of time with it. So this may be a me problem. Um, but there's like a diagram that helps you figure out. It says the day of the Omer on each day, but also there's like a diagram with, I, I don't, it's like, yeah, I can't really explain it. I really it's liked like it. Um, really? I did really like it. I do not claim to understand fully all of it, but I thought parts of it were hard to read. So that was like a design complaint. Some of my qualms about it are really design oriented and some of them are content and mm -hmm. I think both are kind of particular to the person looking at it but some parts of it I thought were very confusing and hard to read but what I actually liked most about it was that each day during the Omer there was a short word or phrase on that day in the calendar and some of them were a little weird um, but some of them were like you can do it or this is great or just like very affirming that I actually felt, oh, if you flip to this day in the calendar and see this really nice affirmation, that could be a really beautiful use of it. Um, and I think all of those words were somehow tied into the day and sort of the theme, which is Kabbalistic in a way I will never claim to understand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and again, from a design perspective, those images took up so much space on the day that throughout the whole Omer, you actually lose a lot of the space yeah. to write things on that part of the planner. And that is a real problem if you are using it again as a planner. So it depends again, I think how people want to use it. 
Yeah. One thing that it does include is, um, the lunar cycle. So it shows you like what the moon will look like on that day, which I thought was cool. But then I was like, wait a minute, you're going to give me the lunar cycle, but you're not going to have a place where I can track my menstrual flow. Like, come on, (laughs) help me out here. Mm -hmm. I would add that if I were going to add something, although obviously I know not everybody who uses this is going to be somebody who menstruates, but I suspect the vast majority of the people who use this kind of planner will be people who menstruate. Mm -hmm. I think we have to include Tamar something that you mentioned um, when we were talking before we started recording, which is that it weirdly, it, it makes sense, but it doesn't include candle lighting time makes sense because this is going to people who knows what time zone they're in. Um, But that's like a core element of what I use a Jewish calendar for and what I, why I like to have it on my fridge and, you know, not for me, it's not that that's a particular time that I light candles, but it's, that's when I know certain people in my life will be turning off their phones. And so if I want to catch them, like I want to know what time Shabbat comes in and goes out. Um, And yeah, that's not included here. Yeah. So looking at this made me think like, okay, what would I want in a planner? And to be, to be candid, I used to be a very religious, I pun intended bullet journaler. And, um, I found it really helpful. And then I just kind of fell off of that wagon. And so I don't have like, I used to be like, I've, ran my life from my bullet journal. I found it really effective. Um, but now I like, I make a to-do list at work that is kind of like bullet journal style, but I'm not like using it for everything in my life. And when I, but when I was, um, I would write the Parsha and candlelighting times. And if there was like the Omer, um, on each day. And the reason I think I fell off is because like, that's a lot of ends up being a like annoying amount of prep work on the front end um, when you're setting it up. And I just was never in the mood to do that. Um, But those are the things that are most important to me. Um, And like, yeah, I mean, a like menu, if I was going to make one, it would be like, I would want candle lighting times. I would want to know like on the front page, like how many days of Yuntif are on weekdays this year. Like I just finished counting like how many weekdays in 2022 will I have to take off work for holidays? Um, and I'll want to know. Um, and then like, it would be awesome if there was a page that was like menu planning for each Shabbat plus Chag. Um, yeah, those are the things that I think I would want. Um, but that's like specific to my life. And I don't know that like that stuff is necessary for everyone, but I'm curious, do either of you use a planner? And if so, like, what is your, what are the kinds of things that you use it for? So I used a paper planner. The word I want to use is also religiously, um, up until, 2013. And it was a very specific planner that was a student planner. So it was organized in a particular way that was somehow geared towards students. And even though I was not a student at the time that I used it, it was very helpful to me. And it had big spaces on every day of the month and then also big spaces by the 
day of the week. And I found it really useful and I used it. And one time I left it in my then boyfriend, now husband's car, and I was lost without it. Like truly could not function, um, <laughs> which was my first inkling that a paper calendar might not be the way to go forever. Um, and the reason I knew it was in 2013 when I stopped using a paper calendar is because right before I had my second child, a very trusted confidant told me that the one thing I needed to do for myself before having a second kid was get myself on Google Calendar. And I did, and I haven't looked back. So I, in fact, don't use a paper calendar now at all. I use Google Calendar for everything. And I have a HebeCal overlay, which tells me things like holidays and Parsha and, as we said, candlelighting times. So that works very, very well for me. You can never run out of space on Google Calendar. Um, and even though you can accidentally delete an event, which I have also done and is terrifying, you can't lose the whole thing. So that is a reassurance that I will never be without my calendar. I have flirted with using a paper planner. I really love, I really love writing with nice pins on nice, just, you know, well-decorated paper. Um, I'm a big yes. doodler. I love seeing my whole month sort of at a glance. Um, I just, I can't maintain paper calendars well enough. Um, and I often fall into mixing journal and planner and then feel kind of uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to pull this out. Like if it's got my work stuff in it, but then I've also like written down when my period came or like just, or how I'm feeling on a day, it just feels a little bit weird. Um, but the thing that actually I feel very sad about and that I'm intrigued by this planner is that really I haven't been journaling in a long time. Um, and I also really love journaling. I think that I would prefer if I were to use this planner, I think I would use it as a journal. And I would prefer then that each day of the week have its own page so that I could fill it up and still have the month at a glance and, you know, the rituals and the other design elements, but not use it as like what I have to do today. This past year, I actually did have a different Jewish planner, uh, the one made by Gold Herring. I think I'm getting that name right. Right. I should check. And I know one of the creators of that one. And I had that one and it was is really beautiful and I really enjoyed it. And I did not use it as a planner. I used it as a journal and I enjoy that it had very limited space actually mm. so that it felt manageable every day I would write a couple sentences and I really enjoy that it was confined like that um, and then in over the summer I went away with my family and I didn't bring it with me and then when we came back I never started it again mm -hmm. and so it was a kind of thing where when I had gotten in the routine of doing it I really did enjoy it and find that the structure of the Hebrew months was very valuable for me. And then as soon as I stopped, I was like, oh, I guess I didn't need it or rely on it that much because it was very easy to drop that habit. Um, but I did kind of see how the flow of the months and some sort of writing prompts about the different holidays can be a really useful structure. 
again, much more as a journal, like you're saying, Mimi, than for actually planning my day-to-day life. I think as you're talking, I'm realizing like what I want is a digital planner, like my Google calendar, which I agree, Miriam is like amazing. I want my Google calendar. I want a journal with Jewish writing prompts and the cycles of the moon and all of the like woo-woo crunchy stuff that I sort of aspire to be, but don't feel free to be. And I want a monthly calendar with pretty decorations, the Hebrew months and the times of that Shabbat comes in and goes up. So that's what I want. Um, that sounds good. I would use that. I also run my life on Google calendar. Um, Although, like, I find that sometimes, like, randomly, it, like, misses a holiday or, like, for some reason, with the Heb Cal overlay, like, sometimes it will be, like, Shemini Atzeret, Shemini Atzeret, Shemini Atzeret, and it will have, like, six events for Shemini Atzeret, and I'm, like, don't do that. Um, (laughs) But other than that, that is, I do use that. But you know what I actually... (laughs) I think use most and like is a very integral part of my Jewish practice. The funeral home calendar that you get for free at the shul that has all of this stuff on it. It's not at all for journaling. It's not at all for anything other than telling you like, what's the Parsha? What is candle lighting time on the, in the like city that this funeral home is in? Um, I, I was thinking about it this year in particular because I was like, who is in charge of making these? How did this become a funeral home thing? How do they decide on the like theme every year? Cause some, you know, and like, I'm so curious, like how much it costs to make them cause they're free. And what is the return on investment? Like, I just, I have so many questions cause I'm a real process nerd about this stuff. Um, but I was like, oh, actually, that's the Jewish, like the physical Jewish calendar that I use the most. So shout out to Jewish funeral homes. Thank you for helping me with something I really always need, which is to know, like, actually what time I'm supposed to be laying candles. Many important public services there. Yes. The other thing that I use is I have two whiteboards in my house that are integral to both of these things. So one is a whiteboard calendar where I write things that I want my kids to see mostly. So holidays and days off and family events and that kind of thing. And then I have a second whiteboard that is exclusively for menu planning. Um, And so now that you've talked about all the ways that you could use a planner for menu planning, like I have a whiteboard. It is very important to my life, but also then I don't remember from week to week, oh, when did I last serve this? What did I have last year for Rosh Hashanah? You know, I think that that kind of posterity that you get from any kind of paper planner is something that my current form of digital planning tends to miss. So with the exception of my Passover meal planning, which is in a Google Doc from year to year. um, So there are still ways to have some of that posterity without pen and paper. but it does lose something in the in the experience. Mm-hmm. So shout out to people who 
still write all of those things down or write anything down by hand, truthfully, yeah. Yeah. which is what I really found kind of inspirational and aspirational about the planner in general, that people are still making things with the intention of other people using a pen and writing in it. Yeah. I, I do have to also give a shout out to one of my dear, dear friends. Um, her name is Kezia Kamenetz, and she's a dream worker. She lives at um, a retreat center and farm in Mississippi, and she made an absolutely beautiful um, lunar calendar that is also for recording your dreams um, with different prompts and practices to help you remember your dreams, get in touch with them, open up the meaning of them. Anyway, just beautiful. And it's it's really inspiring to see like how planners can also be a way of help just helping people like add a layer of meaning to their daily lives and daily and monthly lives. So beautiful stuff out there. Yeah. I think that like one of the challenges of a planner is like it's hard to know before you start if the planner is actually going to like keep you motivated, like make you feel good about writing a couple sentences every day or whatever. Or if you're just going to feel overwhelmed by it, like uh, I don't have anything good to say about this prompt. Like this doesn't feel good. Or if you're just going to forget about it, like, I, I don't know. I feel like I have watched a lot of YouTube videos about different planners. Cause like part of me aspires to be like a planner person, but like, I just need like a notebook with lines in it that I can write things down in. Miriam, as for your menu planning thing, I do have a Google Doc um, that my partner and I have historically used to keep track of um, like who we invite when we used to have people for meals and um, uh, what we're going to make. But then like, first of all, there was an ongoing Mahloket in my house about if a new entry was added to the top or the bottom of that document. <laughs> and second, uh, we just didn't stick to it. Like we used it a lot, but like most often what happens is on Wednesday or Thursday, we sit at the dining room table and I just grab a piece of scratch paper and write down like what we're going to make. And we divvy up who's going to do what cooking. Um, but it's not, then it's like gone <laughs> at, you know, by, by candlelighting, like it, it's, it's use has been used up and it's like in the recycling. So we don't hold on to that information, which I agree is too bad. I have a friend of my parents, like kept a journal for, I mean, I, she may still be keeping it of like who they had over and what they served, um, every Shabbat, which I think is really, really cool. Um, Okay, I just want to shout out one more or just like call out a, a piece of this planner that I really liked, but also found a little shocking, which was um, the reading for the month of Cheshvan is about death. And I liked it. But here is the ritual that is suggested. Um, and this was written by Elliot Kukla. Um, Find a place where you can sit or lie comfortably and observe some of the changes of this season in nature. This can be out a window, in a garden, or out in the wild. Depending on where you live, these seasonal changes might be dramatic or subtle. Take slow, deep breaths into your belly, meditating on these truths. Just like everyone, I will die. Death will come for me, whether I am ready or not. Death connects me to all living beings on the planet. 
<laughs> I read that and I was like, whoa. Happy fresh fun. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as someone who thinks a lot about death and thinks like we don't talk about it enough, I'm like all for this. But I have to say, like, I did not see it coming. <laughs> and when the first bullet was just like everyone, I will die. <laughs> I think I like choked a little bit. I think it's really important that you that you called that out because a lot of the rituals struck me as, wow, I would never do this, but I think I want to meet the person who would. Like, I think I would have a really great conversation with someone whose Jewish identity blossomed by lighting a candle near a picture of a loved one and meditating every night on how the picture was reflected in the candlelight. Right? Like, these are rituals that do not speak to me. But again, I just love that someone, and like many someones, because each month was by a different person, came up with that. I was like, yes, this adds meaning to my Jewish life. Not my Jewish life, but their Jewish life. And I think that's really profound. Um, and great, like meditating on death or, I don't know, I can't think off the top of my head the what one, some of the other rituals were. But. The one for Kislev was apparently Kis and Lev could mean pocket heart. And so it was to create a little pouch where you like almost like a little altar that you can carry around. Oh, yes. The altar. That are yes. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, I am 100 percent going to do this death just like everyone. I will die ritual. <laughs> if you see me in this month of Hajvan, I'm probably thinking to myself, death will come for me whether I am ready or not. Um, <laughs> so. We would love to hear your thoughts about any Jewish planners or Jewish techniques for planning that you have or your thoughts on on this planner, which I think like we've all found a lot of beauty in and also some things where we were like, oh, this is maybe not for me, but super interesting. All three of us have spent this pandemic and even longer reading romance novels. And um, it turns out that I am the gateway drug for romance novels, which is funny because I only got into them really at the start of the pandemic, but I introduced both Mimi and Miriam to this genre. And now I'm so excited that there are finally some Jewish romance novels for us to talk about. So let's dig in. We all read The Intimacy Experiment. Is that right? Yes. And I read the, I'm almost done with the matzo ball. Uh, Mimi, have you read that also? Yeah, finish that. Okay, awesome. Um, Miriam gave me the matzo ball <laughs> for my birthday and therefore has not, I, since I haven't finished it, I haven't given her my copy to read yet. So she can't speak to it. But um, okay, I'm going to give a little synopsis about the intimacy experiment and then we can talk about that, that book in particular and some of the other um, tropes and things that we were interested in. So, um, the Intimacy Experiment is about a couple, Naomi and Ethan. Um, Naomi Grant has built her life around going against the grain. After the sex-positive startup she co-founded becomes an international sensation, she wants to extend her educational platform to live lecturing. Um, and she goes to a conference where she meets Rabbi Ethan Cohen, um, who's the rabbi of a synagogue um, in the LA area. And... Um, they decide to host together a buzzy seminar series on modern intimacy. And surprise, they turn out to be attracted to each other and fall in love. 
So what did you guys think of the intimacy experiment? Was the experiment successful? All right. I'm going to start. I really wanted to like this book and I, I mostly did like it. Um, I think that one of the things that I really love about romance novels is, you know, there are certain tropes there that, that are just always present. Um, most of this, I would call this one, I think this one's like rated PG-13 to me. This doesn't feel rated R, definitely not X. And so a PG-13 romance novel is going to be more about like the struggles that the two characters um, go through before they get to their happily ever after. And a lot of sexual tension. For me, I found it really distracting that the sexual tension was happening at a JCC or in like the rabbi's quarters um, <laughs> in his private office. Um, I also spoken like somebody who has not gotten it on in the JCC. Listen, I have <laughs> no beg to differ there tomorrow. We can talk about that another time. But I just I also I felt like Ethan Cohen. They did a pretty good job of sketching out Naomi Grant. She's like a former sex worker. That's how she describes herself. She was in porn. Um, now she has this sex positive startup. They describe like how sexy she is. And then and they get into like the things that are like difficult or shameful or like the things that she's growing in. But then Ethan felt like a little bit too perfect. Like he's supposed to be a reform rabbi and he's really hot and he's like, yeah, totally sex positive. I took this lame job at a lame reform synagogue in L.A. And, oh, I haven't hooked up with anybody in years. And it just like because I know reform rabbis and maybe a few sexy ones, I'm like, this is not there's. I just had a really hard time with it. I couldn't believe that they that they didn't allow this character to have at least some internal conflict around, oh my God, I'm attracted to a porn star. What is that going to do to my career and my standing? Instead, they they needed the author needed Ethan to be like this incredibly sex positive person, but it just didn't feel authentic to me. And then I went down this weird pat place of like Google image searching sexy rabbis, which didn't come up with anything. So I didn't feel like there was enough. There, there really wasn't enough description oh of what he, what made him attractive, except that he had a beard and a strong jawline. And like, it wasn't enough for me. So take it away, Miriam. Tell me. Tell interesting. Me so interesting. I'm so glad you went first, Mimi. Um, I want to start by saying this is a very Jewish book. The amount of references to very specifically Jewish things in here was really surpassed my expectations, even when I knew that the love interest was a rabbi. I think I wrote this down. One of my favorite lines was when he says... Oh, Ben Zoma was really testing Ethan at the moment when he wanted to get into a fight to defend Naomi's honor. It uses the word shad chanim, like matchmakers. Um, 
it talks about the struggles of synagogues to attract members. And it talks about Naomi's delving into her own Jewish experiences. It talks about the casual anti-Semitism of her childhood. It talks about how she wants to rediscover things and starts going to services and intro to Judaism classes on her own, by the way, at a different synagogue because she doesn't want Ethan to know. You know, it talks about like patrilineal descent and the beliefs of different denominations. It was pretty shocking to me, honestly, that a book in like a very pop culture kind of genre had so many very specifically Jewish references. And I was like, who would get this? Like, us, it's a book for us. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, how narrow is this audience? Or maybe other people are reading it and they're like, I don't know what that means, but the rabbi's sexy. That there was just this very interesting, like it talked about like how to do engagement of unaffiliated Jews in ways that's like, yeah, this is my professional career for so much of my life that it was so weird to read about those tactics <laughs> in a romance novel um, that I really got kind of hung up on just how fascinatingly Jewish it was to me in those ways. Um, I was like, maybe this is how, you know, our grandparents felt when Fiddler on the Roof came out. And it was like, there's a popular movie that talks about Jews, right? It just felt, it felt so Jewish to me. And I actually, I hear what you're saying about Ethan's character, but the things I really, really liked about his character was that he was a sore loser in baseball. I thought that was like showing his humanity in a, in kind of a touching way. Um, and also the way that he talked about his grief when his father died and his spiritual struggle that led him to being a rabbi. Um, I really didn't think those were one dimensional. I think actually on the flip side, I felt that there were some parts of Naomi's character that were super hard for me to take. Yeah. Like when she spilled coffee on herself in a coffee shop and just took her shirt off. <laughs> she had on a blazer, Miriam. She had on a blazer. It didn't sound like it was, you know, a super modest blazer. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, and then like the way that she tried to sexy up the baseball uniform, just like certain pieces of her character felt like it was playing so much into the sex worker stereotype that they were actually trying to work against. I don't know. So I struggled with that a little bit, but I thought that overall it was actually very enjoyable and very sex positive and, and that there were like actually sweet parts to it um, that, that I really enjoyed. Super problematic in other ways, no question, but, but overall really enjoyable. Tamar, please. Agree with everything both of you said. I mean, my number one complaint is I'm always like, how much sex is there? Is there enough? In this case, no, there was not enough. So there was if, one really sexy scene, which we can talk about offline. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, but yeah, there's not really like there's basically one really sexy scene and one like in the epilogue that's like teases that more sexiness happens, but doesn't show you anything. So whatever. So that, you know, one of the primary reasons I'm reading a romance novel, it did not, um, it, it missed the mark, as they say. Um, however, um, in terms of the other, and if you are looking for more sex, the other book by this author, Rosie Dannon, which is about the creation of the sex positive startup, it's called The Roommate. 
and doesn't have any Jewish content at all, but does have quite a bit more sex. So if that's what you're looking for, I recommend that one. I, my thing is honestly that like, I think you're right, Miriam, that this was a very Jewish book in some ways, but like what I struggle with here is like, it didn't feel like my Judaism, like this reform rabbi, like somehow he's like kind of old man, like, even though he's like a young, hot reform rabbi, which is like not my experience of young, hot reform rabbis. Like they don't act like old men. They don't act like the way people expect rabbis to act. Um, and so I kind of wished that the book would have done more with that. And like, obviously it had him end up with some, like with a sex worker. So like in some ways it really pushed things in a new place. And in other ways, like he was still very much like, I feel like what the stereotypical rabbi in a way that I found kind of boring and just like on, and like, just not representative of my lived experience. Not that I've had that particular experience with the reform rabbi. So that was like one piece that I was like kind of meh about. I liked, there is like some like synagogue board intrigue. (laughs) And I was like, yes, that feels very true to my lived experience. And the scene where Um, they run out of seltzer. Come on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That part was also good. Um, But yeah, I guess I like, I always struggle in these kind of books because I'm like, I don't know, this version of Judaism feels very cliched and like hacky to me. I I just found that to be kind of not that useful, but I liked the relationship, even though there were beats that seemed like they didn't make sense, like taking their shirt off in the coffee shop was like a great example of like, no, just like, there's a lot to dig into there, but none of it really makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So that is what I think about that one specifically. I don't, we can't talk about the matzo ball in detail, but I will say that the thing that is interesting to me about this book is that it is about like uh, a woman whose father is like a big shot conservative rabbi. And she, it is super Jewish. Like Miriam, it is like 10 times more Jewish than the intimacy experience. I can't wait. Yeah, (laughs) she she literally there was one line about like, this is from the tractate on the mission, a tractate on dating and just like it's it's so clever. I thought it was really cleverly Jewish. Yeah, it it is very well done, but it also it totally does the thing of like being a in some ways it felt very authentically Jewish. But in some ways, it still was going right for the hack, hacky Jewish stuff. Yeah. And that I guess that the like the reality is like it's a romance novel that is kind of like part of the package. It does take me out of it. And and especially in a book like the matzo ball where like this character, she calls her parents Ima and Abba, which is what I called my parents. Like she like talks about keeping Shabbat and she talks about like how she sometimes does this thing, but sometimes does this other thing, which also feels like super true to life to me and like the Jews that I know. But that book also, like I'm almost done with it. And like, I, all that's happened is that they've kissed. So like, I am not expecting perhaps any sex at all, which like, man, you need to that. Why? 
Um, Light that fire. Though, yeah. yeah, matzo ball, having finished it, matzo ball definitely is like a G-rated romance. And Tamar, I have to agree. Oh, my gosh. When they started talking about the Holocaust in a romance <laughs> novel, I was like, kill me. I can't. You're really ruining my vibe right now. <laughs> but that happens in the intimacy experiment, too. Yes. Yeah. And they Because they talk about her, about Naomi's experience of being one of the few Jewish kids in her school and that they were learning about the Holocaust and... She, it said she slunk in her seat whenever the Holocaust came up in school because she didn't want people to look at her. No, in this one, like the narrator, Rachel, is talking about like, and it made me think about the six million Jews that were lost in the Holocaust and why it's so important for my parents to have multiple children. And I was just like, this isn't hot. This isn't hot. You have to stop. <laughs> wow. To you, everybody's got different. <laughs> well, but I think one thing that's really interesting about it is that if I see a book called The Matzo Ball, it is obviously going to be a Jewish book. Yeah. And The Intimacy Experiment isn't from looking at the cover. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that was really intriguing to me about it, is that if someone read The Roommate, as I think we all did. Um, yes, Mimi? Did you also read The Roommate? I haven't read oh, it. Okay. No. Well, you'll have to read it because it's the same characters. If you've read The Roommate and you pick up the next book by the same author, you're probably expecting that. And so to have it be so specifically placed in a Jewish context was really surprising. Whereas if I see a book called The Matzo Ball, I'm going to be like, oh, this is going to be something can't be about Jewish love. Just based on the name alone, right? And in fact, the cover of that book has Jewish stars all over it. Um, and yeah. nothing about the intimacy experiment, either in the name or the cover, says anything Jewish to me at all, which makes me think like a much more mainstream reader could pick it up and be like, whoa, what is this? Uh, why are they in a synagogue for so much of this book? Um, <laughs> as opposed to the matzo ball, where I think you go into it expecting it. Although perhaps there's even more Jew Jewish content in the matzo ball than I have expected. So I want to just say a few things about like, just a few other pieces to the matzo ball without giving anything away, which is that it felt if you're somebody who likes to sort of see themselves or fantasize themselves in the story, I think the matzo ball is way more approachable because you're getting like just this girl, though she has like serious yichas, she has like serious lineage in her family, but like she's just a normal 30 something Jewish woman. And this is like somebody who she crossed paths with at Jewish summer camp. And it feels very like familiar. So I really liked that. And you could sort of, I don't know, just feel that sort of familiar energy. The other thing, the thing actually that does make her different from me, an average reader, is that they also really dive into she has a chronic illness. And I don't think it's giving anything away, but she has chronic fatigue syndrome. And I feel like I actually learned something about chronic fatigue syndrome through this book. It was really like they dealt with that very like seriously and carefully. And I appreciated that knowing a few people in my life who have CFS. Yeah, that was really cool for me. Fun fact, when I lived in New York, I convened a Christian fiction book club 
because I was like, what is Christian fiction? It was like a time when there were a bunch of like trend articles about Christian fiction. And I was like, I don't understand what that is because Jewish fiction is like half Holocaust and half like the Bible code and stuff like that. So what is, I mean, I guess that's not fiction, but anyways, well, I guess kind of is. Um, (laughs) Shade to the Bible code. Um, 20 years later, I was like, what is this? And so I convened a group of Jewish women and the person who would become my husband. And I was like, let's read these books. And so for like three or four months, we read a different (laughs) Christian fiction novel, including several Christian romances. In fact, they're all basically Christian romances. I wrote something about it at the time, so I, I can put a link to that in the show notes, but it was a fascinating experience. One of the things that was most interesting about it is a lot of the Christian... So they have basically no sex in them, or it's very common for people to get married and then like the person that they have married dies before they have sex. And so then everybody thinks that they are not a virgin, but they really are a virgin. And then they fall in love with somebody else and whatever. That's like a trope. I know it's, it's surprising. All of the kind of like conventions around sex in it were very surprising to me because they're, it's just like a specific way of talking and thinking about sex. But, um, there are almost always Jews in these Christian romance novels. <laughs> like, there was basically always a like Jewish tertiary character who in the definitely the weirdest one that we read was called Redeeming Love. And it was based on the book of Hosea. And in that book, in Redeeming Love, when God is talking the text is bold. And when Satan is talking, the text is bold and italics. (laughs) Anyways, there's a Jewish family that really saves the female protagonist at one point. And we read like an Amish romance Christian novel. And there's a Jewish doctor in that one who saves somebody. And it's like, it's just like a very interesting view of Judaism or it's, it's not a view of Judaism at all. It's a view of like what Jewish people are in relation to Christian people that I thought was just like totally fascinating in these books. And then to read like the, the Jewish version that were clearly written by Jews and just be like, oh, how different we see ourselves. Like we are sexual beings. And like the, that is part of what these stories are about. I think that is really cool. I've read a lot of romances in the last year and a half and like neither of these are like in my top 10, but they're, I was so glad that they exist um, because there's like thousands of these Christian fiction books, which are Christian romance books, which are like, you know, a, a varying quality, like everything else. But like I, there is representation of like Christian people who have a sexual life. And so I was just like, great, like books where Jews fall in love and have sex. I, that's what I want. <laughs> and not, not in a gross way. You know, it's like, it's not Portnoy's complaint. Um, it's like people actually like having deep emotional lives and falling for people. And that makes me happy. So I want to call out and I'll include this in the show notes, but just yesterday, um, Hey Alma published uh, an op-ed by a romance author called 
KDKC. And the title of the article is In Jewish Romance Novels, Happily Ever After Comes with a Dash of Tikkun Olam. The idea being that they're like... In romance novels, you have to get to a happy ever, happily ever after. There are certain things that every romance novel sort of hits on, but a Jewish romance novel includes some turning away. Not, it's not just about the two people in the couple, but there's like this turning towards the community and something bigger, which we definitely saw in the intimacy experiment. And I think could be said of the matzo ball as well. So I, I haven't had enough time to really digest this. Like I said, it just came out yesterday, but I'm excited for people to read and share their thoughts. Hmm. That's super interesting. And especially in light of the very limited amount I know about Christian romances. I, part of me thinks that's like, that's just a religious Mm. convention you know like if you're mm-hmm. going to bring religion into it then you have to show people like being good because that's the religion piece showing up right but interesting yeah i have to think more about that that's super interesting okay um well we have come to my favorite part of every show which is when we talk about th- our endorsements um, it's been a couple months since we last recorded, so I have two, but I am going to let Mimi go first. Thank you, Tamar. Um, so it has been a couple months. It's also weirdly been like a very hard couple of months. Not weirdly. I am finally in my second trimester of my second pregnancy. And the first trimester was miserable. So I feel like I've been a little bit brain dead and just focused on like getting through the day. So I'm going to share with you three very small um, endorsements. Number one is my son is in a Jewish preschool and there's a little girl in his class whose name is Adva, A-D-V-A. And I just think that's the cutest name ever. It means little wave or ripple in Aramaic. So I want to gift that to any of you who are searching for a beautiful Jewish name. Adva, think about it. Number two um, is an episode of the Daily Podcast from the New York Times, which came out on October 1st. It's about um, the Texas abortion ban that went into effect in October. Um, It's a really moving episode. And if you think you already know what abortion bans do to women and to healthcare, I just... I want you to like fast forward to around the 22 minute mark um, where we get to hear just an absolutely heart wrenching story of a woman who um, chooses to have an abortion and is in a really hard place making a really hard decision, important decision. And then my third endorsement, just another little light one. Um, As you all know, I really love romances, um, romance novels, but I've also really been loving a TV show on Netflix called Never Have I Ever. The producer and creator is Mindy Kaling. And, you know, we're talking a little bit about like representation in romance novels and Never Have I Ever is a teen romance, but the main character is an Indian American and they don't shy away from what it's like to be an Indian American from feeling 
both alienated from Hinduism, but also really entrenched in this world. It's excellent. It's so sweet and yeah, really fun, fun show. Awesome. I have been wanting to meet, to watch Never Have I Ever. So I'm totally going to add it to my list. It's amazing. Miriam, what do you have to endorse? I have two endorsements. One is an article that came out in Slate on September 28th by Aman Ismail. I'm really sorry if I'm saying the author's name wrong. And it's called Impossible Pork is Testing My Faith. Whether to eat the plant-based pig substitute is a real quandary for Muslims like me. And I've read so many pieces from Jews about Impossible Pork and I found it really, really interesting to read one from a Muslim perspective and to have the opportunity to kind of think about the dietary laws that I follow in relation to someone else's dietary laws, where I really don't know that much, honestly, about Muslim dietary laws. And to read this perspective, I found it really thoughtful and really, really interesting. Um, and learned a lot, and it made me think a lot about uh, my own eating habits. So I definitely suggest that article. My second endorsement is the board game Wingspan, uh, which I also learned about from an article on Slate. So maybe my endorsement should just be Slate. But <laughs> Wingspan is a current popular board game, extremely complicated with many, many, many little pieces. and. It's extremely fun to play. It is a competitive game that doesn't feel competitive because what you do primarily is based on your own board and doesn't impact other players very much. So you're kind of playing against yourself. Um, I find it really meditative and soothing and extremely fun. And my family has been playing it a whole lot. Uh, so I definitely recommend it if you are a board game person. If you are thinking about going into this winter and not wanting to become a puzzle person again, um, I would consider this game. There is also a one player version. So you can do this activity on your own as well if you if that works better for you. Uh, so those are my endorsements. I have Wingspan and I've not taken it out of the box yet because I'm still I like watched one video about how to play it and was like, oh, God, so couldn't need some. Some coaching from from your family, Miriam. Um, I have I said two endorsements, but I actually have three. So um, the first is a podcast. It's called "The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill," and it is about a um, mega church in Seattle called Mars Hill that um, had a charismatic leader and um, kind of imploded a few years ago and it's just about like that community and what it was like um to be in the community and what was going kind of wrong in the community and it's just so interesting to listen to it from the perspective of like oh i know how jewish communities work in a very specific way and hearing about how some of that stuff maps on onto these onto these Christian community, this particular Christian community and how some of it like doesn't as at all, um, is just fascinating. And thinking about like, you know, the responsibilities of leaders and religious institutions and, um, what, how people were drawn to the community. It's all, I just find it super fascinating. And it is a podcast that's put out by Christianity T today, which is not, um, 
something that I normally spend a lot of time reading. Um, so it's pretty funny to, um, to read that. I mean, to listen to it. Um, and it's ongoing. So there's still more episodes coming up. My second endorsement is a really great article from the New York Times called A Sadness I Can't Carry, The Story of the Drum by David Drewer. Um, and it is just an amazing story about um, grief and loss and how um, this um, Ojibwe man found um, a kind of place to hold his grief um, in this Ojibwe um, ritual. And he really... Um, goes into like how the ritual came to his community actually from a different tribe and how like there was a lot of pain um, as that was happening. And he mentions like at one point <laughs> um, really offhand that uh, his father w was Jewish and a Holocaust survivor. Uh, my father was changed twice, once as a Jew during the Holocaust when others were trying to kill him. And again, only a few short years later, when he served in the Philippines and Okinawa, his force intent on killing other people. We don't learn anything else really about his father and his background, but it's just like so interesting to think about how this person who has both Jewish heritage and Ojibwe heritage, um, how he makes sense of his grief and how his family has made sense of grief um, in the past generations. It's just really beautiful writing and really made me think. Um, so I, I highly recommend that. Um, and the last thing that I want to recommend is another book that Miriam gave me called Closer to Fine by Jody S. Rosenfeld. Although now that I'm saying this, I think I might have endorsed this last time. Um, but I'll just endorse it again in case I didn't. Uh, I think um, you can't endorse this one enough. <laughs> it is a book about um, that takes place in 1997. And it's about um, a bisexual woman who is going to graduate school in psychology in Boston She's living with her grandfather. She's not out to her grandfather. Um, she has a girlfriend. She's her her grandfather is like very involved in his synagogue, and so she's going to the synagogue also. And it's really about her like coming to terms with her sexuality and her identity, and it's like a very sweet book. It's not like the most well written book ever, but it felt very I really enjoyed it and I just wanted to like talk about it with everybody um after I read it and it's also particularly funny because this woman has so much anxiety like she's having so many feelings about um being bi and I just feel like now it's like weird to not be bi <laughs> so it was like funny <laughs> to read this this book where somebody is just like really really struggling with this piece of their identity when it feels like that is almost passe right now. So anyways, I highly recommend um, Closer to Fine by Jody S. Rosenfeld as well. All right, we did it. We made it um, to the end of the podcast, which is great because my computer is about to run out of charge. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Um, and thanks to Daniel Zana for editing our show. If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or on whatever podcasting app you use. Um, you can also let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. We're always looking for good ideas. Um, you can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, um, or on our website, jpmedia.co. Choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. You can also donate to Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. 
which is a really great way to support our show and make sure that we can bring you new episodes every month. Thank you so much, Miriam. I'm so glad you were able to join us this month. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure to be with both of you. Yay. Thank you, Mimi. Thank you. This was so much fun. We will see you all next month. 